It's go time. It's very rare that we discuss officiating on Third Down Gamble, but this week, let's give it a try. Welcome, everyone, to the show. Don Charbon along with Heath Graham and Pat Mooney is alongside of us tonight. Officiating, it's not something that I really relish in discussing. It's something that is part of the game. I've always expected that they do as best a job as the players do, as the coaches do in any game. But when you have some glaring errors that happen during a contest, it does bring to bear some scrutiny. It It's not that they're doing a poor job, but what can you do to fix the situation that arose? Let's start with... Uh, Pyramiding. We saw that called this week. I can't remember the last time it was called in the CFL. It's probably been in the last three years, but maybe once. But to have multiple calls in the same week was just eye-opening. One of them I thought close. Okay, I'm good with. The one in Edmonton, no, that wasn't even close. That was a mistake. And why, why wasn't there a challenge available? And why doesn't the booth get involved? It's the last three minutes. The pyramiding call in Edmonton was a bad call. I agree 100%. It was in no way the definition of pyramiding where you're launching yourself off of another player. The The other call, as you said, was, was close. It certainly could have gone that way. It was very interesting to see two calls in the same weekend. I agree with you. I can't think of the last time I remember seeing a pyramiding call. It almost makes you wonder if there was just a review on the referees to say, okay, let's keep an eye out for pyramiding and so that they were watching it because it is extremely a rare call. And I was shocked when it was called once, let alone twice. Same. I, it's not something you get uh, called very often. The play in question in Edmonton was Matthew Thomas, who launching through, it looks like to me, he just finds a gap. And he's got hands on a couple of players, but he's not using that to propel him anywhere. He's using that to keep the gap open. He fires through there. The, the official making the call is on the other side of the line, back about 10 yards. So he's obstructed by about four or five bodies, maybe more, seeing Thomas go through the line. He's the one that makes the call. One of the things, and I have been an official with football before, is if you can't see it clearly, don't make the call. And I wonder if he, and he went on instinct thinking he couldn't have done that unless. It was a great athletic display by Matthew Thomas. In the Cameron Kelly case, he goes up vertical, but he gets rotated over and it becomes very dangerous as he comes down. And I don't argue the call in that case because of the danger involved. In the Thomas case, he squirts through, even if you're propelling yourself, but you're staying low. How is that pyramiding? I guess if you're going by the letter of the law, when someone squirts through, if they put their hands on and elevate themselves in any sense or form, that could be called, but I don't think it should be called unless there's an, a specific attempt to gain height to make a block in that sense. And I think that's the distinction that we're arguing right now is, are, 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 you know, in, in the Cam Kelly one, he elevates to get in front of the ball. The other one, he's just trying to get through the line. So how many times do players put a hand on another player to kind of push through or, or step by? And I think that's 
a regular part of the game and shouldn't be called. And you're getting very nitpicky to the letter of the law to say, okay, if you place your hands on anyone to move you any period of elevation, he may have been elevated three or four centimeters or an inch or two. Like it really doesn't appear to be much elevation on that. Do you think this is a situation where we see two or more of these called again the rest of the season? Or is this kind of the weekend where it was brought to the officials attention and then maybe it just kind of goes away that's certainly what i was arguing is you know to see two calls concurrently it seems to be something that's been highlighted there may have been some evidence in review of games that there was pyramiding happening in previous games so it was highlighted to the referees to say hey keep an eye on this and obviously they did in terms of the officiating what's going to happen is they're going to review the calls they they will take it to heart that these things happened and they will use it as a teaching vehicle. The officials don't deserve to be admonished or anything like that. They just need to learn exact interpretations. I don't think propelling yourself forward, if he, if Matthew Thomas did that at all against Saskatchewan, it constitutes pyramiding. Vertical, yes, but horizontal, no. And that's where I draw my line because part of the reason, again, as I talked about the Cameron Kelly incident is that when you go vertical, two things can happen. You can land on someone or you can land on the ground. And if you're getting extra propulsion to go up, that means you have a lot further to come back down. Roughing the passer also made its rounds in this week's games with some interesting outcome possibilities based on what happened with roughing the passer calls, thinking specifically of Cameron Judge against Nathan Rourke in the Calgary-BC game, where Judge hits Rourke near the goal line and gets called for roughing the passer. Dylan Wynn did it against McLeod Bethel-Thompson. Ironically, in these cases, called correctly, they are both the same. The defending player comes at the quarterback, hits him square, no problem with that, takes him toward ground, no problem with that, but does not roll off as he's going to ground. And this is where the problem comes in. You cannot, to use a wrestling term, pile drive a quarterback into the ground. And when you're taking your momentum and your mass and laying it on top of that player and pushing towards the ground with it, that means they become the buffer between you and the ground. You have to hit, and as you're going to ground, you can easily roll and get off of the player so that you both hit ground, but no one is pounding the other's rib cage or spine into the turf. Once a quarterback releases the ball, there's some vulnerability there, and this is the the nature of this rule is to protect the quarterbacks. So you're absolutely right, Don. It's the follow through and the, the impact into the ground that is raising the flags. Matt Dunnigan was a color commentator in, in the scheme and had made comments about back in his day, this wouldn't have been a penalty. He's hundred percent correct. We saw quarterbacks of that era get absolutely blown up once they released the ball and driven into the ground. And it was just the way the game was played. Matt Dunnigan also suffered several concussions over the course of his career and should probably be a bit more understanding of the reason why they have changed the rule in protecting the quarterbacks and trying to prevent these types of injuries. I do think that it 
hurts the league a bit when you have someone like Matt Dunnigan saying, well, that's not a penalty without the full explanation. And, and Don, with your explanation, I think the average fan does not see nor understand that. So there was a lot of talk about the discussion and why is this roughing the passer? I think the coaches and maybe the league as a whole have to do a better job of educating people to say, okay, here is why, so that we start to move away from that. It's difficult for players like Cam Judge and uh, Dylan Wynn who played when that wasn't the call necessarily. And all through their college and probably high school careers, they were taught to follow through and land on top of a quarterback. So now it's a point where you have to educate those players and it's on the coaches to do that so that they're not taking some of our premier passers out of the league. You'd hate to see Nathan Rourke go out of the league on a play like that. So it is crucial and imperative that the league does protect them. And I'm okay with the calls. But when you have the announcer saying that, I don't think that does much for the average viewer's interpretation of the game. Cam Judge and Dylan Wynn, neither one has really been called for this before. So it's not like they weren't aware or probably haven't played with those rules long enough. They knew they they got caught. That's all there was to it. And it was a lot of times it's a little bit of frustration that comes with this, right? A player comes through the line, they've got the quarterback, maybe they've been there before and they've missed him. Well, this time they get him and they're not going to let go and they make sure of it by driving him into the ground with their own mass coming to rest on top of them. And th- that's sort of a, you know, I gotcha moment. It's not great for the quarterback. McLeod Bethel-Thompson, when he got up after the win hit, his helmet was ajar, his, but he was winded. And is that what this is about? Is I, I, I've always been told that in football, it's about not diminishing capacity, but diminishing will of your opponent. In other words, do things that take away their fire to win. Diminished capacity means you're going out to injure, and I don't like that at all. And it's not just a concussion. When those kinds of plays happen, the quarterbacks are vulnerable to rib injuries, to arm and shoulder injuries. There's a lot that can happen that can take a quarterback out for a couple of series, a couple of games, or a season if they're not careful. So I know we've talked a lot about player safety in the past, and I'm 100% on board with this one. You see smart tackling out there. Uh, from players as well. Adam Bighill comes to mind. He's a very textbook tackler. He wraps up and brings people down, but he seems to know where that line is and generally generally doesn't drive that player into the ground like some of these other guys have done in these situations. Cam Judge has been known to be a very clean player as well, so it's not a situation where there was ill intent by Cam Judge, but as you said, the emotions and the adrenaline can get the best of you at certain times, and that was maybe the case in this one. Let's move on to a third talking point, and that is late in the Saskatchewan-Edmonton game at Commonwealth Stadium. Chris Jones has an opportunity to challenge a pass interference call against Deron Carter. On the play, Justin McInnes, the receiver for the Rough Riders, is turning. Carter sticks out his hand, brushes his shoulder, twists it ever so slightly, Let's go immediately. Never clutches him, just obstructs him just ever so quickly. The flag comes flying out. Edmonton has intercepted the ball on the play. They lose the interception. Saskatchewan gets the ball at point of foul. The Edmonton coaching staff is scrambling to look at their iPads and see if they've got something that will get that play overturned. They are discussing this with Chris Jones. We see on the replay on television that Jones has 
the challenge flag ready to throw, but never throws it. And looking at the replay myself, I thought, given the situation, given the possibility that if the riders score, that really puts you behind the eight ball, why not challenge at that moment? Those spur-of-the-moment decisions by coaches are often difficult decisions to make. Yet I would agree with what you're saying, Don. In this case, any score by the riders makes this game much more difficult for the Elks. At that point, I think you could have contacted it. Yet, and, and that's surprising. Like if your staff is asking you to do something, I, I don't know why you wouldn't listen to them. Is that just arrogance? It raises that question. The other thing that comes to mind is it certainly appeared from watching from where I sat in the stands at Commonwealth that Jones had said, no, I'm not going to bother. I was dumbfounded, but it led to a Rough Rider touchdown eventually. Two plays later, and, and they found uh, Duke Williams. It's I don't know if it's necessarily arrogance. I just, sometimes coaches, I think, get caught in small pictures so much that they sometimes miss out on the big ones. Well, and it's interesting in comparison, you look at the Winnipeg-Montreal game this past weekend where Mike O'Shea challenged a pass interference or a lack of a pass interference call in overtime trying to find something there. And when they're that close, it's very difficult to overturn. Um, you know, seeing the replay in that Winnipeg-Montreal game, there was some early contact, but was it enough to overturn it? The the officials and command center did not think so. We don't know where they would have gone in this situation with Deron Carter because the flag was never thrown. The Winnipeg Blue Bombers are no longer undefeated. And a lot of the blame is being laid at the feet of Mark Leggio, their place kicker. You win as a team, you lose as a team. And in this situation, the one criticism I will give Mark Leggio is in the dying seconds in a tie game when you're going for the field goal, make or miss, you need to have enough on it to get it through the end zone. That was his biggest error. He seems to have mishit the kick a little bit. Regardless of whether he pulled it left or not, you've got to get everything you've got on it to go through the end zone. A single point in that situation would have won them the game. I don't disagree with the call of going for the field goal. There were some questions asked about whether they should have tried a punt single. The the Putting it on the ground for a place kick is the right call. He was 90% on his field goals coming into this game. And as I said, you win as a team, you lose as a team. They have to take this one as the entire Bombers team and organization and support Mark Leggio because he is under the microscope by the fans and media in Winnipeg. When a kicker misses that last second field goal, it is extremely impactful for the game and it seems to put the blame on them. And I agree with what you're saying. You win as a team or lose as a team. What I found in watching the replay was that Mark Leggio looks to his holder and I thought the hold was fairly clean. I thought it was more of a missed kick. So, you know, when he looks down thinking that that looked like a bad hold, I, I didn't have that impression. I thought it was just a bad kick. But I do agree with you, even on a bad kick, you have to put it through the end zone at that point. You're going to heave that as hard as you can. The only other thing that could happen, of course, happened in overtime when he hit the upright. And uh, that's a tough one as well. There's so much symmetry between snapper, holder, and kicker. I don't want to blame the holder on especially the last play of the game. But it looked to me, though, that he had an angle on it that was slightly 
off angle. If you hit the ball just a little bit off, it's going to create a wobble, which is more or less what happened. Initially, I thought the kick had been blocked. It just came out so wildly. And great play by the Alouettes to get it out of the end zone. Five yards out of there is all you needed to get to overtime. In overtime, of course, Legio misses again. Now, that's we talked about how the Bombers were on the good side of the inch up until that game against Montreal. Well, here they found themselves on the wrong side of the inch because he barely missed that final tying field goal in overtime that would have set up a second overtime. Yeah, had he got a little bit more of the inside of that upright, it probably would have fallen through as opposed to hitting it more square. So we've seen Boris Beattie and David Cote miss easy chip shots to win games or tie games earlier this season as well. It does happen. Biggest concern for Mark Leggio is the scrutiny he was under last year. And those question marks are coming up again already. I guess when you're a team that's 9-0 and going into this game, you look for a reason why you're not sitting at 10-0. and And it's easy to point the fingers, I guess, in the situation at Mark Leggio. I don't know that any of the 1948 undefeated Calgary Stampeders are left on this planet. Somewhere up in the stars, I'm sure they're all tipping a, a glass to each other saying, aha, we're still the only ones. Edmonton losing. How does that impact their playoff chances? They are now three games behind the Rough Riders. No fifth place team can be involved in a crossover. So even looking at where they relate to the East doesn't matter. Well, even the crossover is going to be a push for a Western team this year. We're starting to see the East play the East. We've got now Montreal and Hamilton both having picked up their third wins of the season. So a crossover isn't a guarantee for the fourth place team in the West at this point. But falling another game behind and losing to the Saskatchewan Rough Riders is a key loss because now you're looking at the season series against the team that you're chasing in the standings. It's going to be a real tough push at this point for the Elks to make the playoffs. Edmonton just hasn't looked like a team that's going to be playoff bound this year as they play. They, they may be getting better. We see the mad scientist and Chris Jones still experimenting. Again, this week, a number of players were let go, including Corey Nelson, the returner, who I thought had a pretty good week and, and suddenly he's out. Um, it just seems the experiment continues there. And really, we're probably looking towards next year, any further losses, and I don't think Edmonton will have much of a chance. Saskatchewan winning the season series means that Edmonton, in their final nine games, have to win four more than the Rough Riders to make the playoffs. For every game that Saskatchewan wins, that adds another one to the Elks requirement list. Saskatchewan, say, wins three. That means the Elks have to go seven and two the rest of the way. Second down. A huge upset. The Alouettes, and I'm sure the betting world was falling over with shock as the Alouettes go in and beat the Winnipeg Blue Bombers in Winnipeg 20-17 to in overtime. Lots of storylines. Just a pet peeve of mine. Teams that go on defense first in overtime typically look at the scoreboard and ask themselves, why did we do that? I think the stats would bear that out. About two-thirds of the teams that go first seem to win the games. And, you know, I think teams want to have 
the understanding of this is what we have to go for and the opportunity to go that third down gamble if you need it, but it certainly doesn't seem to be working out. I think if your offense is clicking on all cylinders, you're much better to take your offense first. But on the bright side, this is the one game that Gary Stern actually got his guarantee right. For the second week in a row, we saw the Alouettes hang with the Bombers through three quarters. And once again, actually, they were tied at the end of every quarter in this game. It was a really interesting one to watch on the scoreboard. Winnipeg had their chances, as we talked about. Mark Leggio missed a last-second field goal that could have won them the game. He hit an upright in overtime, but really hats off to the Montreal Alouettes. And we saw the start of the fourth quarter, Winnipeg marched the length of the field. Brady Oliveira ran off a big touchdown, and you thought, here we go again. It's fourth quarter mode for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. And Montreal came right back and hung with them. And the Winnipeg unbeaten at home streak ends just over a thousand days. And uh, it's on to the next one, I guess, moving forward for Winnipeg. Trevor Harris, whose last visit to Winnipeg was a nightmare. 18 of 27, 213 yards, no touchdowns, no interceptions. Zach Kolaris, 21 of 27, 251 yards and a touchdown. A good day at the office. The problem for Winnipeg was the offensive line didn't have an answer for Michael Moore. The Montreal defensive line and especially Michael Moore were absolutely the factor in this game. They continued to put pressure on Zach Kolaris. They had several sacks, a forced fumble. It was a big, big night for that Montreal front four. Five quarterback sacks by the Alouettes against that vaunted Winnipeg offensive line. And I think it was even you, Heath, that said once age catches up to you, it shows itself very quickly. And I'm beginning to wonder if that offensive line has... And this could be a case of the schedule as well. We know they're the last team to get a bye. And when you've got your offensive linemen in that age category of Demarcus Hardrick and Stanley Bryant getting into their mid to late 30s, that's a lot of football. So we'll see what happens coming down the stretch. The rest and byes do favor Winnipeg coming home. They've got three bye weeks in the second half of the season. So that might do them well getting ready for the playoffs. Winnipeg has made a habit out of taking over games in the fourth quarter. And at some point, you're not going to win those games. And I think this was that one. We've had many opportunities and teams have been very close to Winnipeg, particularly this year as compared to last year. I agree with you, Heath. I think they're tired. I think they're ready for the bye. They're going to be well-rested having three byes now between now and the end of the season. So we will either see, are they going to continue to be close with teams or they're going to pick it up and really be the dominant Winnipeg Blue Bombers we've seen in the past. Well, think about this, though, guys. The Ottawa Redblacks came in and almost won on opening night, and it was a fourth quarter late game heroic that won it. The Calgary Stampeders were in Winnipeg, and if Kamar Jordan hangs on to the football in the end zone, we're playing overtime. The Edmonton Elks, but for uh, contacting the kicker, were in that football game in Edmonton. The Bombers have been getting closer and closer to that precipice of losing. And one person actually came up to me and said, wasn't it a good thing that they finally got that out of their system? It probably is. The longer an undefeated streak goes on, the more it becomes all-encompassing. We saw even after about their seventh win in a row, the media starts to focus on that. Michael O'Shea 
has done a great job and so have the players of buying into we want to go one and oh this week that's our goal is to go one and oh this week we're not looking at the bigger picture however the more that gets tossed about and and put in your face you can't help but think about it and it seems like this was that kind of situation they were looking forward to that by as pat mentioned they were a tired football team and it started to creep in a little bit so getting that first loss is probably for the best and if somebody had told me at the start of the season winnipeg was going to be nine and one going into the bye week i as a bomber fan i certainly would have taken it the way this game ended was actually a little bit of a disappointment so it's uh you've got to take the positives out of the nine and one record but it was a tough tough loss at home interestingly enough in the cfl history winnipeg is the first nine no team not to win their 10th i do think it takes some pressure off them it's not about being perfect it's about getting better they've had some tight games as you alluded to don they haven't been as dominant as they were in 2021 they're getting ready for a playoff push and i think losing one takes some pressure off Thirty-one thousand fans in attendance a great great crowded investors group field for a thursday night game so wonderful to see the excitement in winnipeg and the support that they're getting from those fans moving on to hamilton where the tiger cats and the argonauts put on another great show. Tiger Cats win with a huge fourth quarter, something that has not been a hallmark of this season. 17 fourth quarter points for the Tiger Cats, and they win 34-27 to over the QEW rivals. It was interesting to see when Matthew Schultz came back in, in the game, they seemed to really get some energy out of that in that fourth quarter, and that helped them to really take it to the Argonauts in that final quarter and Hats off to the Tiger Cats. This is the team we thought could do that at the beginning of the year, and we haven't really seen it until this point. Who would have thought it would be with Matt Schiltz at the helm, though, and not Dane Evans? That was a little bit of a surprise. When I saw that Matt Schiltz was the starting quarterback in this one, I was tending to lean a little bit more towards the Argonauts, but a a solid game from him. And as you mentioned, 17 points in the fourth quarter to put this one away. Interesting sequence in that fourth quarter where... Toronto with a third and one and the Tiger Cats are leaving their defense out there thinking that Toronto's going to go for it but the Argonauts because McLeod Bethel Thompson did such a poor job on the previous play plunging forward they decide to punt the football away Lawrence Woods takes that punt and goes all the way unfortunately for the Tiger Cats Micah Johnson gets called for a holding penalty another foul that (laughs) Matt Tunnigan jumped all over Ticats still get the ball, though. Two plays later, huge pass from Schiltz. Tim White scores a 72-yarder. One big loss for the Toronto Argonauts in this one as well, as we saw Andrew Harris go down with an injury. He had three carries for 19 yards before coming out of this game, and all reports are that it's a torn pec muscle, may require surgery. Looks like, best-case scenario, he has gone four to six weeks Worst case scenario is he requires surgery and may be done for the remainder of the season. Could be a career. McLeod Bethel Thompson, 24-37 for 287 yards, one touchdown. Matthew Schiltz, 14 of 19, 176, a touchdown and an interception. Jamie Newman, who came in in the third quarter and did fairly well, although he ran more than he did anything else, two of two for four yards. The rushing side of it, though, seven carries for 55. And I think that's why 
he was in there. They weren't worried about him throwing it. They wanted to make sure they could get first downs. We also saw we also saw Chad Kelly get a rushing touchdown for the Argonauts. They got him into the game in the short yardage situations. My question is, what happens now with the quarterback situation in Hamilton? We don't know what the situation is exactly with Dane Evans, but we'll see what happens if Matthew Schultz gets a couple more starts under his belt and maybe gets a couple more wins. Got to give credit to um, Speedy B, Brandon Banks, who pushed Chad Kelly into the end zone on that play. As Kelly was working his way down the line, he got pushed backwards and was starting to stumble backwards. And Brandon Banks came up behind and pushed him into the end zone. That is legal. You can push a player forward. But if Brandon Banks picked up Chad Kelly and carried him into the end zone, that's illegal. Over 23,000 at the game. Not bad for a team that had only won twice all season. The big fourth quarter, of course, something that we hadn't seen from the Tiger Cats all year was the big factor. And is this something that you look at Schiltz because he was able to provide in the fourth quarter and Evans has not been able to, that maybe Schiltz gets the nod? Well, we've seen them employ the two quarterbacks in several games this season when both players are healthy as well. So maybe it's a situation where Matthew Schiltz gets a few more looks in the fourth quarter if they're coming from behind and trying to lead a little bit of a comeback. Saturday, two big Western Conference games, starting in McMahon Stadium in Calgary, where the Calgary Stampeders took on the BC Lions. And maybe what could be described as, depending on what happens the rest of the way, the game of the year. BC trails all through the game until five seconds left and kick the game-winning field goal to come out with a 41-40 to win over the hometown Stampeders. Calgary has been involved in several of the leading candidates for game of the season this year because I would say that matchup against Winnipeg that came down to a an interception in the end zone was was right there as well. So uh, a great game. Both quarterbacks put up some pretty solid numbers, especially once again, Nathan Rourke. And what a finish to put up 20 points in the fourth quarter to come from behind like that was a, a big, big win for the BC Lions. And they have continued to impress and to show the rest of the league that they are for real this year. To see Nathan Rourke step up in the fourth quarter and throw for almost 250 yards was very impressive. He just continues to impress week after week, and we shouldn't be surprised, but he put on a clinic. He struggled at the beginning of this game, but he was resilient, and his team came behind him, and he made some amazing throws on one or two-step drops when he hit Brian Burnham long to make that. And then he followed up with the same throw to Lucky Whitehead, doing it as well on third down. Very impressive for the young man. On the flip side, I guess I was looking at Bo Levi Mitchell. And when you look at his completion percentage of 56%, on the last four games, he's had a 52% completion for 187-yard average. This game, he actually threw for 206 yards. But I'm wondering, he seems to not be as accurate. And I'm wondering if he's having... The issues that we spoke about last year with injuries. As you said, 18 of 32 for 206 yards and two touchdowns. Nathan Rourke, 39 of 52 for 488, a new Canadian quarterbacking record for a single game. And two touchdowns, two interceptions. The one interception, of course, early in the second quarter. Oronlade takes it back to the house for the Stampeders on a pick six. 
It's a good question with the stamps. They're, they are the leading rushing team in the CFL right now. They've depended heavily upon that. Are they protecting Mitchell? Let's give some credit to BC. They, they've had him under pressure quite a bit and were taking away a lot of his deeper routes. There were a couple of times, if you recall, in the game where Mitchell threw the ball down the field, and this happened in Ottawa as well, threw the ball down the field and was questioning if his receivers were reading the play right. You could certainly tell that he was frustrated at the end of the game when he called out not only his team, he did call out his own play as well. Calgary didn't play well enough to win, but at the end of the day, they put 40 points on the board, and you'd think that they should have won that game. Well, they are doing well sitting at 5-3, and three, you do wonder if there's potential for some issues. I'm looking forward to seeing if this continues, Saskatchewan against Calgary, to see which team falls out. I think Calgary's the better team based on what they've done thus far. However, they haven't been able to win when they need to, and I do think that Bolivar Mitchell just isn't playing up to his traditional self in these last four games, certainly. This game did nothing to dissuade me from my thought that Winnipeg, BC, and Calgary are head and shoulders above the rest of the league at this point. It didn't disappoint, and Bo Levi Mitchell has had impressive winning percentages pretty much every single season he has played. We might be seeing a little bit of a decline this year. They're still 5-3 and three and very much in contention in the West. However, they can't lose much more ground. We know they've lost the season series already to the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. And BC now has the upper hand as well. So if the Stampeders are going to make some noise in the playoffs, it's looking right now like it's going to have to be by being the road team. Let's be fair to the Stampeders' defense, though. Safety, Brendan Dozier, gone for the game. Middle linebacker, Jameer Thurman, gone for the game. We already chronicled their shutdown corner, Trey Roberson, gone for the rest of the season. That's three huge cogs in your defense that were not playing. So it's little wonder that they would give up a few more points than they normally would. That's a very valid point, Don. And in the past, we've seen the Calgary teams in their heyday being able to plug that next man in and be just as effective. And I'm not sure that we're seeing quite that same level of depth on these Stampeder teams. It's. I don't think it's a question of depth. You've got such tremendous skilled players in those positions. Roberson may be the best shutdown corner in the league. Jameer Thurman is certainly the best, next to best middle linebacker in the league. And then you you take that talent pool away, Brendan Dozier at safety, who's really coming into his own, it just changes up your dynamic. That's a, that's a quarter of your defense that you have to change out. And these are quality people. So it's not a question of necessarily depth but experience as well. And when you mentioned they're missing a shutdown corner and a safety, you look at some of these plays by the BC Lions. Brian Burnham's longest play was 53 yards. Dominic Rhymes, 30 yards. Lucky Whitehead, 32 yards. Who's likely to be covering in situations like this? The guys that weren't in the lineup. I found it somewhat perplexing in this game that Calgary, who is, as you mentioned, Don, the most effective running team Going into this game, they averaged 5.6 yards per carry. Certainly went up in there. They averaged 114.4 yards per game prior to this game. And again, did fairly well. But they seemed to move away from their running game when they were up by a lot. That is a strength of this team. And and the offensive coordinator needs to hold that 
and grind out the clock a little bit. BC has the ability to quick strike, as we've seen multiple times throughout the course of this year. If they'd been able to run more effectively and continued that running game, which they do fairly effectively, I think they could have used up the clock and potentially eked out this win. Part two of the doubleheader on Saturday, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders are in Edmonton to take on the Edmonton Elks. Over 25,000 green jerseys in Edmonton. Some were adorned with white trim, some adorned with gold trim. Always a huge bump in attendance when the Rough Riders are in Edmonton. A very, very interesting football game. Storm extends halftime for an extra 30-some minutes. But the Rough Riders are the team that prevail 34-23. It comes down to two amazing parts of the game. 45 seconds of the second quarter where Rough Riders kick a field goal, Edmonton down and score a touchdown. The Rough Riders take the kickoff and go back the other way. And then, of course, the end of the game where the Rough Riders get down the field, get a pyramiding call. Uh, in this one, I thought Saskatchewan should have been doing much better, and I was disappointed in their offense. It seemed to be very unimaginative and didn't seem to be able to do much. Hats off to Edmonton with three or four-man rush. Cody Fajardo was running for his life most of the game. Fajardo, 11 of 20 for 130 yards, a touchdown and one interception. Taylor Cornelius, 13 of 23 for 209 yards and one interception, that coming at the end of the game against Roland Milligan. The the Rough Riders at times looked like they were in charge and at times they looked like they were lost out there. And especially that sequence at the beginning of the fourth quarter when the wind started to pick up, that Cody Fajardo interception that he threw on the sideline, you could see from the stands that that ball was never, ever going to make it to Keon Schaefer-Baker. It fell way short, the Elks intercept, and that started their march to get back into the lead. Neither quarterback really was a shining light in this one. You look at these two compared to the game that Nathan Rourke had in Calgary, and it's night and day. I have to give credit in this one to Mario Alford. You mentioned a kickoff return touchdown. A bit of a bounce-back game for him. We know he's had some mishaps in the return game in the past and three kickoff returns for 160 yards including a touchdown is a great night and punt returns he made positive yardage averaging eight yards per punt return so this is more what you expect from Mario Alford and maybe he's turned that corner a little bit and is is going the right direction and we won't see any more of those miscues. Seven quarterback sacks in the game four by the Rough Riders. Defenses did dominate for the most part. The winds really did change in the second half. It had been a very more or less calm day until the storm hit. And then after the storm, the wraparound effect of the storm was that the winds changed direction and they became quite intense. 261 yards of offense for the Rough Riders, 365 for the Edmonton Elks, 131 yards rushing as you guys were talking about with the Rough Riders, 156 yards for Edmonton. Huge win for Saskatchewan. They come into the game on a three-game losing streak. That now breaks that losing streak, but boy, have they got a daunting schedule, which we'll get into in a moment, facing them. For the Edmonton Elks, that puts them three wins behind in the win column, same number of games played. They've lost the season series to the Rough Riders. That means to finish ahead, as we talked about earlier, they need to be free and clear, which means they have to win four more than the Rough Riders the rest of the way. Third 
down. Two double headers this week. We start in Ottawa, where the Red Blacks coming off the bye will face the Edmonton Elks. The Red Blacks at home are minus 4.5 favorites. Little surprised by that, given that the Red Blacks have won but one game all season. However, if you look at the recent history of the Elks and the Red Blacks, Ottawa swept them in 2021. It's not like Edmonton's running away with the head-to-head record or even where they are in the standings. We see both of these teams at the bottom of their respective divisions. It's a really tough call. It's one of those games where you just don't know what's going to happen. If one of these teams starts to click, we saw what Ottawa could do in their win when they got that offense rolling a little bit. Caleb Evans was a star of the week. We saw them struggle in their last game, and we don't even know where that leaves Caleb. We saw Nick Arbuckle come in in relief and manage to move the football a little bit. I would probably lean towards Ottawa at home in this one. Four and a half points seems like a pretty big spread in in this one, though I would suspect Ottawa wins, but probably doesn't cover that spread. I find this to be a tough game because Edmonton has played well in the East on occasion, and this seems to be where they can potentially pick up a win. Uh, Having said that, I I think Ottawa is coming on. Caleb Evans' last game was somewhat disappointing offensively, uh, but I think they'll be able to pick it up, and I think I'm going to take Ottawa to cover in this one. It's a matchup of the two worst offenses in the CFL, neither team averaging over 20 points a game. And it features a Midland Ottawa defense that gives up about 24.4 per game and a league worst Edmonton defense of 36 points per game. Based on those numbers alone, you'd think that Ottawa's defense should be stronger than Edmonton's defense, and that should be the difference in the game. You do have to look at two of those losses by Edmonton being blowout losses to the BC Lions where they put up a ton of points. So is it an anomaly or is the defense struggling that much? Well, BC's put up points on just about everybody. Edmonton in the East, as Pat alluded, have won twice. Could they do it a third time? I'm leaning, and I think Arbuckle is starting. Uh, Nick Arbuckle for the Ottawa Red Blacks. I'm leaning towards the Red Blacks with the extra time off. They've been starting to come around. It's been their offense. It's been their Achilles heel. If the offense can get going and make some strides, they should prevail. Game two of the doubleheader on Friday night. Again, no game on Thursday. The BC Lions are in Saskatchewan for the first of back-to-back games against the Rough Riders. The season series is still on the line between these two. If the Rough Riders sweep the next two against BC, they own it. BC on the road is minus 4.5 favorites against Saskatchewan in Regina. This is the late game on Friday. Very generous to the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. I, I think that BC, with that high-power offense, and a defense that should be able to put a lot of pressure on Cody Fajardo, I think they're going to be able to cover that spread easily. I'm going to take BC to win here. Food for thought between Saskatchewan and British Columbia. The Lions have over 1,100 more yards of offense in one less game played. A couple of weeks ago, BC was in Saskatchewan, and we saw the BC Lions really dominate that one. Nathan Rourke... Didn't seem to be too flashy through the first 
half of that game, but ended up with well over 300 yards passing. And for Saskatchewan to have a chance, that front seven with that linebacking core and, and the people coming back onto that defensive line are going to have to win that battle. I just don't know if they are capable of it at this point, and I am with Pat on this one. I'm going to take the BC Lions to cover the spread. I can't argue. The Lions are definitely the better team coming into this contest. BC is favored. They deserve it. They should cover. Saturday, Ticats take a break from the Argonauts and play the Alouettes in Montreal. Montreal, after their big win in Winnipeg are minus 2.5 favorites against the Tiger Cats. Most likely, Matthew Schiltz will start for the Tiger Cats. Of course, Montreal was the team for whom he played not that long ago. We see these two teams coming in with identical 3-6 and six records, both coming in on the back of a win. Uh, I expect a pretty evenly matched game between these two teams. Montreal is at home, so that generally gives them a little bit of a bump, but I'm going to take the Hamilton Tiger Cats to pull this one off on the road. I think this is a game that Montreal could put it together and win, but Hamilton seems to maybe be hitting their stride a little bit, and I am also going to take Hamilton on this one, even though I do think there's a possibility Montreal does actually cover that spread. Montreal, for now, goes as Trevor Harris goes. If he has another strong game like he had in Winnipeg, the Alouettes will be all right. Montreal's defense is definitely rounded into shape. That could be a problem for Matthew Schiltz. Montreal at home, Eastern opponent, winner gets sole possession of second place and maximally could be tied for first. After that big win in Winnipeg, I think, the Alouettes' confidence is sky high. I'm going to put my money on the Alouettes to cover. Final game of the day. Both games based in the East on Saturday. Calgary is in Toronto to take on the Toronto Argonauts at BMO. Minus 2.5 favorites for the Calgary Stampeders on the road. Now we know the Stampeders went into Ottawa and took care of business there. We saw them with a furious rally against the Tiger Cats and win in overtime there. Is Calgary Meritus of a minus 2.5 favorite or because Toronto, who plays so well at home, should we give them a little bit more respect? As we spoke to the injuries with Andrew Harris and, and Cam Phillips actually out, I think that takes away a couple big weapons for Toronto. McLeod Bethel-Thompson has often outthrown the opposing teams, but it's because they are often playing from behind. So in this case, I do think Calgary is going to come in and put up a much better showing uh, than, than, well, I won't say Calgary, but they put up 40 points. So they, they played a, a good game last week, but I believe both Levi will have a bounce back game and I think they should be able to take this one and cover any spread. Let's be fair to the Calgary offense. Two of the touchdowns against BC, one was special teams and one was a defensive interception. So Calgary's offense only put up 26 against the Lions. I'm going to go the opposite way in this one, and I'm going to put my money on the home team. I think this is a, a real key matchup for both of these teams to see where they stand. Is Calgary destined to finish third in the West, and is Toronto ready and willing to take a stranglehold on first place in the East? And that's the way I'm leaning in this one, so I believe that the Toronto Argonauts come out with the win at home. 
unless there's a tie between Hamilton and Montreal, one of those two teams is going to be tied with the Argonauts for first place starting that game. Toronto's going to be well aware of who that will be. Toronto, I trust, is going to be highly motivated to win this football game to keep that stranglehold on first, even though it's by a game with the back-to-back looming with Hamilton. If you get that extra win, that always helps you in those circumstances. I'm going with Toronto and defying the spread at BMO in winning. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter at Third Down Gamble. Join us again, the Third Down Gamble podcast, audio worth watching. Third Down Gamble uses the expert resources provided by Canadian Football League player and game statistics for analytics, game notes, and statistics, and 3downnation.com for news, insight, and in-depth analysis. Please visit cfl.ca and 3downnation.com for the most up-to-date information on the Canadian Football League.